Welcome to Mission Revive, a podcast dedicated to hope and healing through God's transforming love, where your hosts, anchored in truth and armed with faith, are changing the world and reviving hearts with Jesus, one conversation at a time. Hi. Welcome to this episode of the Mission Revive podcast. I'm Bob Newberry, and I am a board member of Revive Hope and Healing Ministries, a collection of Catholic apostolates impelled by the Holy Spirit. My partner for today's podcast is Ann Costa, founder and executive director of Revive Hope and Healing Ministries. Good morning and welcome, Ann. Thanks, Bob. Well, I'm going to introduce our guest right now, and I'm very excited to do so. What a timely opportunity to speak with yeah. Leonard J. DiLorenzo. He's a PhD and serves with the McGrath Institute for Church Life and teaches theology at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, Leonard is the award-winning author of eight books, including Our Faithful Departed, where they are and why it matters that's coming that's out now and it's a beautiful book that we're going to talk about today especially timely because we are recording on october 31st on hello's eve and we're going into the month of november where we we focus and pray for our faithfully departed and leonard is going to really share with us why that's so important but he's also written other books. He's written uh, What Matters Most, Empowering Young Catholics for Life's Big Decisions. He's also written a book called Into the Heart of the Father, which I can't wait to get because that is part of our mission is to draw all people to the heart of the Father at Revive Hope and Healing. So I really need to get that book. And as I'm the one that you're very interested in, Bobby, was the editor uh, of um, the most recent book, The Chronicles of Transformation, A Spiritual Journey with C.S. Lewis. In addition to teaching and writing, Leonard travels the country and the world to give talks on a variety of topics like the spirituality of the saints, character formation, very much needed, um, the biblical imagination and parish renewal. He's also the host of popular radio show and podcast, Church Life Today, which I really can't wait to check into. I haven't yet. And he and his wife, Lisa, live in South Bend, Indiana, where they um, they raise their six children. My goodness, Leonard, please come on. And um, you're probably going to think this gentleman is old as the hills, but look at him. <laughs> He's young. He's young and <laughs> there's a there's a, a filter. I'm, I'm using a filter on my Are video you? to take okay, off age. So. Yeah, yeah, there's a wow. there's an anti aging filter that I use. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's so good to have you here today. Well, thanks so much. It's so nice to be here. Yeah, you know, uh, Leonard, when I looked at your uh, uh, biography and I reviewed uh, uh, books and efforts and uh, various activities, my tongue was hanging out, honestly. Um, uh, trying to figure out how you do it all in 24, 24 hours a day, seven days a week and so forth. But, uh, um, well, the key uh, is to not do any of it well, and then you can do more. <laughs> well, that, I don't think that's the truth. All that, right. I could go off on that one. Uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, as, as I prepare for, uh, the podcast, we, we do, I try to try to come in with uh, some questions that, okay. that might guide the discussion. But but uh, frankly, I, I looked at the title of this newest book, Our Faithful Departed, Where They Are and and Why It Matters. And I was discussing with Anne earlier today, uh, uh, the title really 
can be used to structure maybe our discussion or at least sure. start us. Um, why does it matter? Uh, can you can you talk about uh, or address that question from your title? Indeed. I would say it matters where the where our faithful departed are and our regard for where they are and how they are, because the communion of Christ in the church is a communion not just of us who are the pilgrims making our way, but it is indeed the communion of us with the beloved dead, those who are undergoing purgation and those who enjoy the beatific vision. And I think that uh, as a practice of the church, this is something that we very much need to revive, the under, not just the understanding of our full communion in Christ, but also the practices that open us to that communion. And I think one of the ways in which we as the faithful can really heal, both in terms of those who are grieving, but maybe even and in a certain way, especially for those who are not currently grieving, is to open ourselves to the communion with the dead. The church calls us and draws us into that in our liturgy, in the tradition of our prayers. And I think it is a way to sort of revive and renew our lives in the world, which is to make a regular practice out of exercising this communion. So that's kind of the, I suppose that's the 30,000 foot answer or the view on why this matters. Um, and it is a, a beckoning and a call to kind of refresh our imaginations and really stretch our imaginations along with our hearts and minds to our beloved dead who actually make us whole. Isn't that beautiful? They make us whole. I, I was, could you expand on that? What, do you, what is it that you mean by that? So I think if we think about this in the in the personal sense for any of us in regard to our own faithful departed, uh, our loved ones who have preceded us in death, we know if we really stop to think about it, that we are not ourselves by ourselves. By that, I mean, it's one of the great illusions to think that I am first myself and then I might enter into relationship with others. In fact, the way in which we're created and that the Lord calls us is that we are intimately and intricately connected to those who have given us life, who have loved us, who have at times grieved us, who have perhaps harmed us, whom we have loved and harmed ourselves. And so we are never just, it's always an illusion to think that we're ourselves as separated from those with whom we have shared life and been called to share life. And so our openness to our beloved dead in prayer and longing and works of mercy is at one and the same time about us really exercising what it means for us to be wholly ourselves, that um, our relationship with them, for good and for ill, in need of healing, certainly, but also as an opportunity for gratitude and praise, is part of each of us being who we are most fully. And I've learned a lot about that, in fact, from conversations, in fact, interviews with people who are grieving, um, from fathers, a particular father, Robert Cording, who continues to grieve the death of his adult son, from uh, another young woman, Stephanie, who grieves the loss of her mother, Susie, um, from Laura and Franco, who grieve the loss of their two infant children. Each of them in different ways has taught me that uh, they are not themselves by themselves, that part of who they are is tied up with their beloved dead. 
And so that's sort of what I mean by the dead make us whole. They're part of who each of us is in our wholeness. Yes, yes. I, yeah. um, I, I, I reviewed uh, every now and then I, I looked at uh, a, another podcast uh, uh, newsletter, this one from uh, um, The Catholic Thing. Mm. And on, on Sunday, uh, um, the, uh, the newsletter uh, talked about a good death. And it really draws a comparison between the church's view of death and the world's future view of death. And I, uh, the, the, the closing um, few lines talked about the, the world has cloaked its fear of death by offering its definition of a good death, which essentially uh, a consideration of euthanasia. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, they mean a death that is not painful or inconvenient or unpleasant. And then the last line is the church has a different idea about what what good death is. And I uh, I I can't help but you know as is as we've started this discussion just in the few minutes we've uh, we've talked, what a very different uh, perspective on death than mm -hmm. than really what we don't talk about most yeah. of the time huh? your, your book talks about cutting you know how we've cut death off from life mm. Mm. and mm -hmm. and we and in doing that we've cut the people off and that we will you know you talked about medicalization of death now and the separation that happens and that is really taking a toll it's taking a toll not just on the grieving as you said but on society can you talk a little bit more about that yeah, you know, this this sort of modern secular notion of what a good death would be is really a novelty. It's something that's only come upon the scene in the last hundred years or so. Whereas for a thousand or more years before that, the, what was commonly saw, seen as a good death was the death for which the dying person could prepare. They were sort of aware of what was happening to them. It was a very communal scene. You would you would notice this in art and in the rituals and in uh, extant writings from uh, from various periods over the last several hundred years. That those who were dying were surrounded by certainly family, even children, by neighbors. That it was a process. The dying process was something that was undertaken by a number of people together. It was a sort of uh, a sort of liturgy, if you will. It was a more of a public movement. I trace some of this in the book for the for the sake of helping us to understand this without getting too bogged down in the historical developments, but really from the early 1900s onwards in a very rapid fashion, there were significant changes in the customs regarding death and what came to be prized was much more of the invisible death where uh, those who are dying and indeed those who are ill are kept out of the public eye where the person who is dying, uh, what is what tends to be preferred is that uh, they be kept as much as possible in a state of ignorance about their own predicament that you wouldn't, you know, the good death is seen as the one where the person dying uh, doesn't seem to know that they're dying. And um, this these radical changes, there's more to say about that, but these radical changes are not just about that moment of death for that particular person who's dying. If you think about what happens for a society that takes death out of you, except of course for entertainment purposes, but takes death and dying out of you, it changes what the meaning of life is. It means that we privilege 
uh, health, but not sickness. We privilege activity, but not kind of the passivity of suffering. We privilege individualism and isolation, but not those things which are born together in community. So that's all to say that it's not just about that moment of dying. It's about the whole conduct of a life, if you will. Um, I'd also, there's something else I was going to say. It's escaped my mind. That's probably enough for now. I think, I think, you know, you talk about the importance of the body. You talk about the value that our faith places and the sacredness of, of the body and the human life. And we're still unpacking and studying all that, but we see the crisis Mm. of, 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 of people and their bodies right now, and certainly death and what that means for them. Our church has something very rich and much more uh, mysterious and beautiful for our bodies and the, and the resurrected bodies that we're hopefully going to occupy in heaven, right? This is true. I mean, paradoxically, the faith of the church uh, forces us to take death even more seriously than we otherwise would. In fact, we ought to see death as, in a way, a total catastrophe. This is an utter tragedy. All of the things that get woven into our lives, all of our memories and actions, all the care that we receive and give, all of that happens in and through our bodies. And at death, that body becomes inert. It becomes, it loses its animation. And as we know, the body starts to break apart physically, but also if we think about it in terms of all the things that go into and through our bodies in life, all of those things are separated, the memories, the connections, that's an utter tragedy. In fact, it would be the most grievous sadness if everything that goes on in our lives stopped at death and was pulled apart. But the church's faith, the promises of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the promise of our own resurrection is that in the midst of that great tragedy where everything is lost, by God's action, Everything is pulled back together, remembered, if you will, put back together, both in terms of God remembering who we are and giving us ourselves back, but also in terms of pulling back together all those parts of our lives that have been pulled apart in death, the relationships that are broken, the memories that are severed, all of that. And so the hope of our glorified bodies, and there's some theological sort of illumination that we can get on this. What is the glorified body? What is the body that we hope for? It is a body that possesses and contains and presents all that we would hope, or maybe even more than we could hope, about our own activity, about our relationships, about the way in which we can be known and we can know others, about our capacity for love. And so I think it's actually really Uh, sort of healing to learn about the properties of the glorified body. Things that might at first sound a little bit distant, like subtlety and agility. But once we really ponder them, we see, oh, this is indeed what we ought to hope for. And Christ gives us this as our hope. And you know, you really helped me understand a passage that I absolutely love, Mm. but maybe really didn't understand from... From the resurrection story when when mary magdalene went and and touched christ and he said no don't touch me you know <laughs> and how you explain that really was so cool and can you can you share i, I don't want to 
do a spoiler, but can you please yeah. share that and and how that really does it's what we're called to. And you're, you, I just, it was fascinating. Please share. Yeah, we might remember this from the end of John's gospel that mm -hmm. Mary Magdalene meets Jesus outside the tomb. And he does, in fact, tell her not to touch him. He has not yet right. ascended to his, to his father. This, I think, is for each of us. And it's actually sort of wrapped up in the title of this book, Where Our Beloved Dead Are and Why It Matters, that the the sort of temptation or the desire is to pull our beloved back towards us, to how we have known them, to what we uh, perhaps are comfortable with or familiar with. But there is a beckoning that takes place there with the risen Lord to Mary Magdalene. Her call is to go towards him in glory unto his father's household. She's meant to be stretched and changed and transformed. And there's a connection there about our own beloved dead, whom we entrust to the love of Christ, that there's a there's a sort of natural desire to want to bring them back to where we are, to if only we could get things back to the way they were, we, see, we might think that would restore and heal everything. But our beloved dead, hidden in the mystery of Christ, are also a beacon for us, a, an invitation and a spur to move us toward them in glory. We ought to change in our love for our beloved dead, and it's a painful change and a transformative change, but a change nonetheless. And I think, you know, part of what you're pointing to there in that biblical scene, that gospel scene of Mary Magdalene reaching out for Jesus is really the beginning of that calling for us to move, for us to journey towards our beloved. To do that, we do have to grieve, though. Oh, indeed. Yes, yes indeed. So, None of this is about turning away from grief. In some ways, it's about plunging more deeply into grief, but actually also, therefore, doing something with the grief. Yeah. For those who have grieved, we know what it feels like to be caught in grief or what even St. Augustine would call black grief, which is grief we can't do anything with. It just takes control of us. But and part of, you know, one of the things I, I do in the book is I show the way in which even somebody like St. Augustine had to grow out of that and pierce through that black grief. And really what it was, was him learning what to do with his grief through the example of his mother, Monica, and also the movements of the church. It's a healing in grief, not to get over grief, but actually to offer our grief to the Lord as sort of the voice of our longing to be reunited with our beloved dead. And that is a good longing, yes. the longing to be reunited. Yeah. When I, I, I do some um, mental health therapy work, uh, Dr. Mm. Leonard, and, and uh, I've had conversations with a number of people over the years of drawing the distinction between grieving and mourning. Mm. Grief being something that uh, really is is not something I choose. It just happens to me. I'm overwhelmed by it. There's a process. And mm -hmm. but mourning really is largely a matter of choice. Mm. Um, and uh, what makes that choice so much more meaningful and uh, and healthy and, and, and productive is really uh, a view of the world and death as you describe it, as, mm. as, as the church provides that. Uh, uh, to us. And, and I wonder, this might be a good transition to talk about where they are uh, from, from the title of your book. Could you, could you, uh, could you uh, launch on that for, for a few minutes? 
Certainly. Yeah. And I love that distinction that you made. I think I'm just going to adopt that if you don't mind. I love it. The, the distinction between I, grief. And I, mourning. I, I forget who I stole that from. Well, you know, so, the, so, the way these things happen, the first time you use somebody else's thought, you say, you know, my, my friend, you name no, them. Okay. And then yeah. it's somebody said, and then the third time, you, as I've always said, right. Yeah, yeah. It becomes your own. It becomes yeah, your own. Yes, thought. Yes, yes, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. got it. But it supports know, what, what you wrote about, though. I just want to say, Bob, it uh, really does support the the last part of his book, which is what do you do with this morning? It's, right. it's an action. It's a that's right. It's yeah. a it's a it's a communion. But anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm thinking of there is you bring up morning as uh, something that you enter into, something that you do is we've each of us is at a disadvantage. In some ways, we've been impoverished by the lack of these rituals of mourning in our cultural life. That I think when loss, the loss of loved ones comes upon us, it almost always comes as an unprecedented tragedy. In other words, for many, many, many people, uh, it's as if we have never been through those stages of mourning before. Like in some ways, we didn't get to practice it. We didn't get to mourn with others. And that is not something that is the fault of any one of us individually. It's a cultural loss. And so this, I think, is part of the church's responsibility and call, but it's not just the church. It's actually to take this on even more into our regular lives from our exercises in the church, which is to recapture many of these periods of, of mourning, many of these rituals of mourning, because it actually teaches us and tutors us how to be more fully human. In some ways, we practice beforehand in mourning with others and sharing grief with others, what we will need later on when, as you said, the grief just comes upon us. We don't choose it. So what if we thought about that, like to voluntarily mourn when the grief isn't inflicted upon us by a close loved one? We do it voluntarily so that when we involuntarily grieve, others are doing it with us. And in some ways, we have some, some practice with it, if you will. We've learned about this stage of life as well. But to your question, where are they? Where are the dead? The, the briefest answer is they are, we have entrusted them into the love of God. Now, that's a mysterious love. In some ways, it's hidden from us, what that means, where they are. But what I try to do is give us the images from scripture and to bring us into a series of reflection to stretch our imaginations into, in some ways, seeing or apprehending what that there really is, the there of Christ for our beloved dead. And it is a plate, you can say it's a condition that we can only really see and know through prayer and longing, through communal practice, and through the hard work of faith. Um, that's probably the best I can do at the moment here. That's it? That's probably it. Yeah, I mean, we want we want to wear that we can see, right? Like, um, we want to pull away the curtain and say, there it is, like, there's the place. But it's actually, it's actually our, our sort of desire to kind of land on a conclusive answer to like, see a place. That's part of what we have to be healed from. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. You know? Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's yes. really, really, you know, th that is a very important statement that you just made because we see people kind of trying to hold on to the old person through mm -hmm. means that are 
are not good for their spirits even in terms of like seeing psychics or whatever the ways that people are trying to communicate mm. with the dead and mm. and all of those things which is just a distraction from the very beautiful truth of our faith which which allows us a deeper a much deeper connection and yeah. um and reality of of our souls that are never they're never diminished right yeah. so um well and you know the encounter if we if we just stick with the gospel passages like mm -hmm. the encounters with the glorified lord the risen christ there's a con in every single one of the encounters they do not recognize him in every single one they have to be shocked into recognizing him that ought to be instructive for us what they were looking for he's not hiding right but what they were looking for was in some ways the wrong thing they had to be shocked into this new way not only of seeing but of relationship of openness to their lord we should expect nothing less for our own beloved dead if we entrust them to the glory of christ like we'll have to be shocked into this new way of relationship to a beauty that exceeds what we previously wanted. And we see that in Christian art all the time. I mean, we see this in, say, Dante's Divine Comedy, when Dante encounters his beloved Beatrice, he is shocked into seeing her. That's following right from the gospel witness about what it means to encounter glory. And can I just go beyond that the beautiful Absolutely. way that you talked about the eucharist and the present and how it connects us with mm. with our beloved departed and very well, and, much there yeah one of the things i wanted to draw out there's a number of things mm -hmm. in terms of, of the eucharist but one thing is to to consider the eucharist or reconsider the eucharist as the meeting of offerings and to really focus, especially on that part of the Mass where we bring the offerings forward and there's a prayer over the offerings at the Mass, we ought to we ought to really dwell on that. There is an exchange there. Of course, the greater offering, incomparably greater offering, is the Lord's offering at the Mass. He gives the bo his body and blood. The Father gives the body and blood of his Son. He gives the communion we cannot achieve on our own. He gives us back our communion with our beloved dead. But that doesn't mean we don't do anything. We actually make an offering. In the bread and the wine, that's a real offering, but it's also the symbol of the greater offering of our lives as well. Our hopes, our prayers, our wounds, our lamentations, our mourning, we bring that to the altar to be blessed and consecrated. And I think that's a way in which we can, we can actually reimagine the connection between, say, popular piety the work of prayer, of longing, the acts of mercy that we do in between masses, and the exchange or the gift that the Lord blesses us with upon our lives. And so that's a way of kind of opening our hearts and minds to a, an even fuller appreciation for the Eucharist. The Lord calls us forward to give him what we have. We need. We don't even have to pretty it up. Give him the pain and the suffering. Give him the lamentations make something of it to give to him and he will bless that and give us even greater gifts in response um so maybe we ought to think about eucharistic offerings in that case that's brilliant yeah so um, can i go pop bob do you have any more questions oh, no fire away so, okay no. so go. as we enter into um 
as we enter into all souls, all saints, yeah. all souls, what are some of the rituals that we can rediscover? What, what should we do be doing as, as this season comes upon us? Of well, one on thing us. I'd like to suggest is that we often designate and rightfully so November for these periods of remembering and devotions for the sake of our beloved dead, right? There'll be a, perhaps a, a book of remembrance in a parish where we write the names of our beloved dead. There will be, of course, the, the two liturgies to begin the month and especially on November 2nd, the commemoration of all souls. Here, it seems is the time that we do this work of remembering the beloved dead. I would want to suggest that instead of seeing November as the month designated for this, we see November as the month that stands in some ways at the head of the year of beginning this work again. Yes. Like maybe we start in November with some of these rituals that we then continue for the next 12 months. We make a new commitment and maybe it's a different commitment for the coming year of what it means to remember our beloved dead. When we write the names of our beloved dead, say in a prayer book or a, a book of remembrance at a parish, I've learned quite a lot from somebody like Dorothy Day, servant of God, Dorothy Day, and from people who are closer to me who have learned from her example. She wrote the names of her dead in her daily prayer book. And each day, for example, she would pray over their names when she did her daily prayers. And she says that she got older, this started to take a lot more of her time because more people that she knew died. And as she got older, more of her contemporaries died. But it was a real sacrifice of her time and her prayer daily, a way of exercising communion and longing for the beloved dead to offer prayers from them. Many times, even, it wasn't people who were particularly dear or close to her. It was people who might have been neglected, who might have who might have been otherwise neglected, who might have annoyed her, that she offered prayers for in her in her daily prayers. That's the kind of thing I have in mind. And one of the practices that I uphold uh, by the end of the book, along with four others. Um, so I'd, I'd like to give that to people as a suggestion uh, to really invest in these practices in November to make a lasting commitment. It might look a little bit different in November than the rest of the year, but what would be the weekly or uh, maybe even daily commitment of this exercise of remembrance and prayer that we can commit ourselves to? I have to tell you that I, after reading, after reading your book, um, I was driving uh, my granddaughter to school this morning and mm. on the way I, I began to just remember people who have passed away, who have died mm. that I hadn't thought about in a really long time. And, and, and I prayed for them and it, and, and it felt so beautiful because I mean, they were coming to my mind and heart. I haven't thought of them in years. And I don't think that was any, that was no accident. The ones mm. that surfaced were the ones that probably needed prayer and and communion at that point in time. So oh, I was just, beautiful. it was, it really was, a, it was so, it made me feel peaceful inside. It made me feel mm. hopeful inside to do that. Mm. Oh, I love well, that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad that's a great grace. I'm glad that occurred. Yeah. yeah. I'd also say, you know, some of this is, well, a lot of this is inconvenient and hard too, that sometimes the remembrance is, um, it's surrounded by a feeling of delight, 
but sometimes it's it's surrounded of course by a feeling of pain but also i've had experiences of sort of self accusation or self examination uh friends of mine who died um in their 20s or in their 30s and to it it calls to my mind when i really dwell upon their memory the ways in which i might have failed them um the way in which i wasn't a good friend to them all the time and I think reckoning with that and actually begging for pardon, begging for forgiveness for theirs, for the Lord's, is also part of remembering them and honoring them well and becoming whole myself. Um, when we profess in the creed towards the end that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we're also pledging ourselves to that work of seeking forgiveness and forgiving one another. And I think I'm I'm grateful for those painful experiences I've had of remembering my friends, say Brian or Jill, um, and the ways in which I did not, I know I did not love them well. And I'm not being hard on myself. I'm being honest. It's just true. And I have to ask for forgiveness for that. You know, I've I've prayed for a uh a way to connect some dots here today. And I it 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 just occurs to me, uh, Leonard, that um that much of what you're talking about suggests that our picture of creation and uh, uh, our faith and our Lord really needs to be much bigger than we <laughs> than we think it is. And uh, right. and my favorite uh, um, book in uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. See, here's uh -huh, you did it. You, you did, did it. it. You okay, did it. is the last battle. Yeah. And and in fact. Uh, uh towards the end of of that book when when aslan appears and uh i, I forget really how 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 yeah. lewis describes it but it was it was just it's nothing that i expected mm -hmm. um and it, it just uh it just impacted me so powerfully uh to realize that uh that uh my my view of life my view of death is is so limited and so small relative to how it how life and death really is and mm. and uh and that uh the ending of the uh, the last battle uh taught me that and i uh, one one last thought i'd, I'd share is that one uh, about a year ago my mother-in-law passed away and and uh uh her kids most of her kids were present and uh, priest was there uh doing uh doing the last rites and i have to say that that's one of the more remarkable experiences i've had in my life um not in a sad way at all but in an enriching enrich uh enriching uh beautiful beautiful um uh way mm. you know absolutely and i uh, i i so thank you for for the work that you've done that you're doing and uh and and this this wonderful uh, topic that you've taken on. Well, thank you, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about it together. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Can you can you let us know where else people can can connect with you, sure. um, so they can hear more about what you have to share? Sure. So this book, uh, Our Faithful Departed, published by uh, Ave Maria Press, a fantastic partner in publishing. They've actually. Uh, committed to a series with our institute here, the McGrath Institute for Church Life. So this book is one of several books in what's called the Engaging Catholicism series. So oh, you can find Our Faithful Departed with Ave Maria, Maria Press, and of course, you know the other places where it's sold. Um, I Our institute, the McGrath Institute, uh, you can find us online at mcgrath.nd.edu. 
I also keep my own uh, personal website, which is leonardjdlorenzo.com. And one of the ways in which I communicate uh, actually weekly with a, a good number of people is through a newsletter I put out uh, called Life, Life, Sweetness, Hope. So uh, if you'd be interested, any, any folks listening, I'd love to have you subscribe to that. And I'll share some things with you each week. One thing about the Christian life, about sweetness and about hope. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoyed seeing how you broke that down uh, three areas of each newsletter, you know? I, yeah. Uh, very, very, very cool. Vida Dolcedo space. Yeah. There you go. There you go. I'm good, Anne. Okay, great. Awesome. We are so grateful to you and we'll be praying for you yeah, and, thank you. and, and the, and this, this real ministry of mercy for praying with and for the our beloved departed so thank yeah. you so much thank, thank you Leonard yep thank you best wishes we are grateful that you joined us today for another episode of the Mission Revive podcast we humbly ask for your prayers as we continue in the mission entrusted to us to evangelize and revive hearts with Jesus we would also ask that you prayerfully consider becoming a sponsor of this podcast or making a financial contribution to support this growing ministry. You can do this by visiting our website at revivehopeandhealing.com or through our Revive Hope and Healing Ministries patron page. We cannot do this without you. Thank you.